get into John chapter 18 today. John chapter 18 verses 1 through 11. Before we do, I just want to say a really quick and sincere thank you to Sam Huggard, who is not here to hear it. Um, last week, uh, I was about to come just muscle through my, my sickness and, and preach anyway. Uh, and then I realized that as I was trying to practice my sermon, I was just drooling on my table. I had something really bad, and I couldn't swallow well. It, it, was, it wasn't good. But it was better with Sam. And Sam didn't just fill the pulpit. He fed you the word. So I'm thankful, thankful for, for Sam. Uh, another thing before we get going, uh, I want to give you just another quick plug for what's coming two weeks from now, and that is our annual business meeting. Uh, it's, it's kind of a misnomer. The annual business meeting is a time for members to vote upon the budget for the next year. It's also a time to vote upon officers, elders, financial representative for the next year. But more than that, it's a time for our family to come together and really look back on everything God's done this year, in 2019, and look forward to what we're, we believe God's leading us in the year and years to come. So if you've been here from the very beginning, if you are a founding member of Be Free, please be there. Uh, and if you have friends who come December 1st for the first time ever, bring them. Uh, this is a great time for us to come together and just see what God's doing and where we believe he's leading. So all are welcome. And it's also, it's going to be a meal. Uh, so if you, before you leave, please would sign up to bring a dish or two uh, to that potluck. This is going to be a great time to get to know one another um, and just share some sweet time together. So please, please, please put this on your calendar, December 1st, right after, right after the service, right here. We're in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And rather than giving a longer introduction, let's pause right now to pray. Pause right now to pray, and then we will start diving in. Hmm. Heavenly Father, we are here only because we love you. We're here because we want to grow to know you more through your word. But not just so that we can know you more, Lord, but so that we can worship the God we meet here. So that we could do this together as a family, Lord. You commanded us to come together for the purpose of worship, Father, and that's what we're doing today. May we worship today. May we not be distracted by things that are coming later on in the afternoon, things that happened earlier this morning, things that are coming later on this week. May we be focused on what we're doing and what we're seeing right here and right now, and that is you in your word. And I pray, Father, that that would change the way we live, that we would long to live for your glory, long to live for the honor of the God we meet here. And so, Father, as we see Jesus here being betrayed and arrested, I pray that even that would change the way that we think and live and worship. God, be honored by what we're doing here this morning. I am so excited to worship you. <laughs> You're looking at your word. So use this time, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we've been in the upper room, the last supper for 10 weeks. Before that, Rob walked us through the book of Titus for four weeks. So it hasn't been since July 28th that we've actually seen Jesus out of the upper room in John. So I think it... We need to know where we're at. 
What's actually going on here? What is the context that Jesus is stepping back into as he leaves the upper room? Well, we're in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is packed. It's packed with Passover pilgrims. Jews from all over Israel have piled into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Even Jews from outside of Israel have been traveling back or have traveled back to Jerusalem for this great feast and this great celebration. Now all of these masses, these pilgrims, they've been hearing about a man named Jesus. They've been hearing about two things. Number one, they've been hearing about his miracles. They heard that just very recently, just a week or two before, he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And they're talking about that. And word spreading. And it's not just the miracles that they're talking about. They're also talking about Jesus' teaching. That yes, this man was a gifted teacher, but he didn't teach like the other teachers. He didn't teach just by passing on what other teachers said. Rather, he spoke with authority. And what that meant was that he spoke as if he was the one giving the teaching. It was almost as if this man thought that he was God or something. And so the masses there, they heard these teachings and they heard about his miracles. And when he rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, less than a week before this moment, they ran out to meet him with palm branches in their hands. Shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. Those are the words they were shouting. And that was a problem for the Jewish leaders. It was a problem for the Jewish leaders because the masses were running out of the city crying that this man was king. But what would the Romans do if the Romans caught wind that all the Jews believed that this man was king? Wouldn't that seem like treason? Wouldn't that seem like a revolution against Caesar? And so all the way back in John chapter 11, the the Jews decided that they were going to crush Jesus. They were going to put Jesus to death so that the Romans wouldn't come in and crush them. But now as Jesus leaves the upper room, this is the context that he's stepping back into. A city full of adoring masses who believe that he is some sort of political liberator, but then also a city full of powerful, influential Jewish leaders who are trying to find a chance to crush him. As we've seen over the couple weeks before, Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends and allies, has betrayed him and wants to help the Jews do just that, crush Jesus. So let's start together in John chapter 18, 1 through 3. This is where we find ourselves in Jerusalem. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. If we could put the map up here on the screen. What we see is that Jesus, probably somewhere in the southwestern part of the city, leaves the upper room, travels to the east, exits the city, goes across the Kidron Valley, where the brook Kidron is, up the Mount of Olives to a garden. A garden that we know from the other Gospels is called the Garden of Gethsemane. And now this is perfect for the Jews. Because the Jews couldn't arrest Jesus in the city for fear that the mobs would revolt. Remember, the mobs believed, the people believed, that Jesus was this liberator. So how would they respond if they saw Jesus being arrested? But now Jesus is going out to a quiet, secluded place. A place that Judas knew about. A place that Jesus knew Judas knew about. And a place that Jesus knew Judas knew he would be. In other words, 
he was walking straight into their hands. But still he went. Intentionally. We have to recognize this. Jesus wasn't being outsmarted by the Jews. He wasn't being outsmarted by Judas. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he went to this quiet, secluded place. He was walking straight into the hands of the Jewish leaders intentionally. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels in the New Testament, they tell us a lot more about what happened in the garden. They tell us about how, for instance, Jesus told his disciples to stay awake and to keep watch as he went off to pray, but how the disciples actually fell asleep. They also tell us about how Jesus went off to pray and he begged the Lord to protect him or to rescue him from having to go to the cross. John doesn't tell us about all that. John actually jumps straight past all of this, straight to Jesus or to Judas's arrival and straight to Jesus's arrest. So let's go ahead and read chapter 18, verses 4 to 11, and read about this arrest. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go, referring to his disciples. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? These eight verses are remarkable. There is so much in these eight verses, so much more than I saw the first time I read it. And it just, I'm so excited to share it with you because it shows us a number of things about Jesus. It shows us four things, actually, about Jesus on display right there in the garden. And it reminds us and reveals to us four things about Jesus that are still true for us today. And these are the four things. I'm going to list them for you. Number one, knowledge. Number two, power. Number three, protection. And number four, surrender. What we see is that Jesus is number one, all-knowing. Number two, all-powerful. Number three, he protects his own. And number four, he is surrendered to the will of the Father. So let's walk through these eight verses and see these four things. Knowledge, power, protection, and surrender. The first one, knowledge. Looking in verses four and five. I'll read those for us again. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So Judas, Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. We actually saw that before, just a moment ago. He knew that Judas knew the place where he was going. He knew that Judas knew that he would be there. He knew that Judas would betray him, as we saw over and over again in the upper room. And we could go on forever about all the things Jesus knew, because as it says right here, Jesus knew all that would happen to him. 
It tells us that very plainly, very clearly right here in verse 5. But then it actually gives proof that he knew. It gives proof that Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. Because all of a sudden right here, predictions are starting to come true. If you remember back in the upper room, Jesus said to his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. And they said, Lord, who is it? Who is it that's going to betray you? And he responded, the one to whom I give this morsel of bread once I have dipped it. And he dipped the bread and he gave it to Judas. Right there in the upper room, Jesus identified not just that he would be betrayed, but who was going to be betraying. And then right here in verse 5, John goes out of his way to say that Judas was standing with them. He didn't have to add that little detail. He added that little detail that he was standing with them to prove the point that Jesus knew exactly what was going to be happening. Nothing that has happened to Jesus, is happening to Jesus, or will happen to Jesus is a surprise here. Jesus has perfect knowledge of everything that's going, that has happened and is happening in the garden and is about to happen at the cross. Now this is true of Jesus here. And it's true of Jesus in general. It's true of who Jesus is, and it's still true of Jesus today. As God, as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he was there in the beginning. He is here with us today, and he will be there on the day at the fullness of time when he comes again to bring his kingdom. Not just that, but he knows all that has been. He knows all that is, and he knows all that will be. Nothing is off Jesus' radar. Nothing takes him by surprise, and he has never had to resort to plan B. Jesus knows everything. And I think what's amazing is that we as humans, we are, we are barred from knowledge of the future, and this drives us absolutely crazy. We want to know what's coming down the road. We want to know the future from fortune tellers to weather forecasts, we want to know. And the issue is when we don't know the future, we respond in one of two ways. Fear and anxiety. Both fear and anxiety are a direct result of the fact that we want to know the future, but we don't. We have fear because it stems from the fact that we don't know what's about to happen. And we're afraid that what might happen might not be what we want. We have anxiety as a result of the fact that we can't see around the corner. But praise be to God that what is a mystery to us is not a mystery to Him. Praise be to God that our good, good God and King is fully and perfectly aware of everything that's about to come. He sees the crisis before it comes, and we can find rest in that. We can find rescue from our fear and from our anxiety, from the reality that our God is not and will never be surprised. I have a friend who... Actually, uh, I went to school with for nine years. A really close friend of mine. And she's somebody that I respect immensely. Uh, she is a gifted teacher. Actually, when we were studying together, she was, uh, she was developing these gifts of studying the Bible and, and teaching the Bible. She received a full education from multiple schools, and then she got opportunities. She was given opportunities by professors and and pastors to use her gifts and, and to grow. Ever since graduating from seminary, she's been using her gifts to speak at retreats to literally thousands of women. She is one of the gifted, most gifted teachers I know. But then a couple months ago, she fell into sin that was so absolutely jaw-dropping for me, completely out of left field for me, 
I would have never seen this coming for her. This is somebody I knew so well, and the sin that she fell into was so scandalous that it even drops the jaws of the world when they hear about it. And when I hear about that, I, I don't understand why that happened. I want to cry out to God and just say to him, God, why would you let her gain so much attention and so much success before she falls into this amazingly scandalous sin? I want to cry out to God, God, why did you give her so much favor just for her to throw it away? God, that's not the way I would have done it. And I can cry out, why, 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 all day, but the thing that I cannot cry out is, God, if only you knew. Because he is not surprised by what happened here. His jaw has never hit the floor. I find rest and peace in this situation, a situation that I personally have been wrestling with quite a bit recently. Rest in peace in the knowledge that though he is sad, he is not shocked. He is not scrambling for plan B, and he will never scramble for plan B, because he has perfect knowledge of all things that are and that will ever be. My good, good God and King knows all, and he sees all before it happens, and I can find rest in that. And so can you. So if you struggle with fear and anxiety, not knowing what's coming down the road, remember, you have a God who knows. You have a God who is not surprised, will never be surprised. You have a God who is not only in control, but cares about you and will be with you when it does come. So that's the first thing we see here. Jesus is perfectly all-knowing. Secondly, Jesus is perfectly powerful. Verse 6, let me read this. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This, this is crazy. What do you do with this passage? What's amazing about this passage is that the posse that came to arrest Jesus is consisting of soldiers with weapons, officers with torches, Pharisees with lanterns. This was a powerful group of people. They were physically powerful. They were religiously and socially powerful. Likelihood is they brought a crew this big and this powerful in case there was a mob who wanted to prevent Jesus from being arrested. So it's likely that Jesus and his disciples were even outnumbered by this crowd. But despite all the power of the crowd that was in front of them, Jesus speaks. And when he speaks these words, just two words in the original language, the crowd crumples. What Jesus says here is, I am he, in in the original language. Language is just ego eimi, two words, I am. Jesus here, he uses an expression to identify himself that is the same expression that God uses to identify himself in the Old Testament. He says, I am. He uses the name of God to say who he is. And think about how crazy that is. Because this is a group of people who have come to arrest Jesus for making a divine claim. And in response, he makes a divine claim. This is bold, right in the face of the Jews and and the Pharisees. And this is powerful. So powerful, it seems, that when he said this, the crowd drew back and fell to the ground. And like I said, I don't know exactly what to do with this passage. Nobody seems to, really. What's amazing about it is that Jesus has said, I am, about himself at least six other times in the book of John alone, and no other time they fell to the ground. But what we do see here, it seems, is at the very least, this is a testament to the, to the power 
the power of the claim that Jesus is making. Jesus' power is on display. And the reality of who He is, the great I Am, is proof of that power. And so still today, God doesn't just know all things, but He is the same God, Jesus is the same God who is able to do all things. He and His power is still superior to the power of man. His power is still superior to the power of the enemy. Nothing is outside of His mighty sovereign hands. He is still powerfully working all things together for good. I mean, think about this. (laughs) Jesus is about to be murdered. And His murder is not His defeat, but His victory. He's able to use His victory and turn that around for good. How much more the crises in our lives. And we think about ourselves, humans, we are barred from knowledge of the, of the future, but we're also barred from perfect power. And this drives us nuts as well. Just think about the fact that we want control that we can never have. We seek for and reach for control, even at the, depra- uh, the, the depriment of our own friendships and marriages. And the problem is when we actually get that power, history is, has no shortage of examples of the fact that we have no idea how to handle that power. If you want proof of that, just let a seven-year-old watch a five-year-old. People don't know how to use power. But we want it. Praise be to God that the one with perfect power is the one who is perfectly good. The one with perfect power is the only one who seems to be able to handle that power. The one with perfect power is the one who is not just the sovereign God, but also the good loving Father. How terrible would it be if the perfect God was not also a loving Father? And how pathetic would it be if the all-loving God was also not perfectly powerful? The fact that God is perfectly powerful and perfectly loving is what makes Him God. (laughs) If you remove either of those, He becomes a grandma or a dictator. And we can find rest in this knowledge as well. We don't know what's coming around the corner. God does. We can't do much about it. He can do everything about it. So on the day when crisis hits, and it's coming, on that day when it does hits, maybe, maybe it's a sickness, maybe your kid's going to get in trouble, maybe you're going to lose your job, whatever comes down the road, on that day you will feel weak, and you are weak. On the day when it comes, you will feel powerless to change your situation, and it's going to drive you nuts. But on the day that it comes, you can remember that you are powerful, but he is powerless. But he is not powerless. He is powerful over the crises when they come, and you can rest in his sovereign, powerful hands. So the first two things we see about Jesus is that he is all-knowing. Number two, all-powerful, both in the garden and today. Let's move on to the third thing we see about Jesus. This is out of verses 7 through 9. Jesus protects his own. Verse 7. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So remember, Jesus is outnumbered. He's overpowered, at least if you're counting swords 
and titles. And he's also not prepared for a fight, even if he wanted a fight. But still, Jesus speaks up here and he says to this powerful crowd standing in front of him, If you seek me, let these men go. In other words, look, I'm the one you're looking for, so leave these guys alone. Jesus is in no position to bargain. He's outnumbered. He's outpowered. At least on the surface. So who is he to stand up and try to bargain with this crowd? They're the ones with the power, at least it seems. But yet he does. Jesus bargains with this crowd. He wants to protect his disciples. And for whatever reason, the crowd listens. The crowd agrees. Maybe this is another picture of Jesus' power. I, I don't know. But what we do know is that for whatever reason, Jesus says to the crowds, leave them alone. I'm the one you're looking for. And they listen. Jesus' substitution for his disciples here is obvious. But before we go down that rabbit trail much longer, I actually want to continue on to the fourth thing. Before we think more about the protection, let's think about his surrender. This is the fourth thing we see about Jesus here out of verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Despite the strength of the crowd, perpetually confused Peter steps up to fight. He decides he's going to defend his Lord single-handedly against an entire mob of angry soldiers and officials. But Jesus says to him in verse 11, maybe it's just wisdom, I don't think, I think there's more to it than that. But he says in verse 11, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I think the key word here is cup, actually. Oddly. When we think about the cup, what is, what is the cup that Jesus is talking about? When we read the Old Testament, a cup actually shows up quite a bit. Specifically in the Old Testament prophets. Very often in the Old Testament prophets, when we read about the cup, it's talking about God's cup. And it's a symbol of God's judgment. It's being used to talk about God pouring out his wrath. The cup of God's wrath is what Jesus is referring to when he says, Shall I not drink this cup? And this isn't the only time that we hear Jesus talking about a cup. In fact, this isn't the only time we hear Jesus talking about a cup in the garden. We don't read it in John, but we read it in the other three Gospels that when Jesus goes off to pray to his Father, he prays about a cup. He prays, this is from Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. I just remember hearing that when I was a kid and being so confused by that. Jesus has a cup. But the cup here, the cup that Jesus is talking about, is the cup of God's wrath. That's what he's referring to. And specifically, he's talking about the cup of God's wrath that he is about to drink for the sins of mankind when he hangs on a cross the next day. And what we need to see here is that Jesus is not excited about drinking this cup. He does not want to drink it. He begs the Father in Luke and Matthew and Mark saying, Father, remove this cup from me. It's drinking this cup that will cause Jesus to cry out to his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not something Jesus is looking forward to. However, though he prays, remove this cup from me, his very next words in Luke chapter 22 is, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is not excited about drinking the cup of God's wrath, but he is surrendered to the Father's will. 
He says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And I can't help but read this and think back to John chapter 10. It's been months since we've been there. But this is something we read in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Let me read this. This is Jesus' words. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And then he says this, This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is living out what he taught there in John chapter 10. Jesus is going willingly with his captors. He is laying down his life. Why? Because this is the charge he has received from his Father. This is the cup that the Father has given him. This is the task the Father has asked of him. And he is obediently and willingly going to the cross. Jesus is in control. He is submitted to the will of the Father. He lays down his life of his own accord. He alone has the power to do it. He is prepared to die. He is prepared to be a substitute. He is prepared to drink the cup of the Father's wrath for our sins. And he is prepared to do that so that we don't have to. In this passage, we see Jesus' perfect knowledge and perfect power on display. And then here in these last couple of verses, what we see is that he protects his own by his obedient surrender to the Father's will. Let me say that again. He protects his own by his obedient surrender to the Father's will. These two last things go hand in hand. (laughs) And what's more true today than that? What's more true for us than this? That Jesus protects us through his surrender. He still protects his own by saying to the great judge, take me and let these men go. That's what he said for us. He still surrendered to the Father's will by still drinking the cup himself so that we don't have to. By faith, we are still the beneficiaries of his great, amazing, loving, humble, obedient surrender. So have you trusted in Jesus? Have you trusted in him? Because if you do, he will drink the cup of God's wrath for you if you believe. We all deserve to be judged for our sin. We all have fallen short. We all are broken. But he is willing to take the punishment for us. He is willing to drink the cup that we deserve to drink. Will you trust him? Will you let him He wants to do it, not because he is looking forward to it, but because he loves you and he has surrendered to the Father's will. And if we do not let him drink the cup, the bad, bad news is that we will have to drink the cup ourselves. So Jesus is arrested. And on the surface of the situation, it just looks like Jesus' situation is going from bad to worse. It seems like things are going downhill really fast. But the truth, when we take the smallest step back, is that a very different story is going on. The real story, what's really happening here, 
is not that he's being outsmarted, not that he's being overpowered, not that he's being hoodwinked, not that the wool's being pulled over his eyes, but rather that Jesus is in perfect control. That he has not lost his power. That he is surrendered to the Father's will. That he knowingly goes to the garden. That he was willingly taken by his captors. That he submissively calls off his defenders. All while protecting the disciples he loved. In this passage, when we see his knowledge, his power, his protection, and his surrender, get this. We are seeing Jesus as he still is. We are seeing Jesus do what he still does. He is all-knowing. He knows all things that have been, are, and will be. We are seeing him have power over all things that have happened, are happening, and will happen. And we see that he is surrendered to the Father's plan to protect us from the judgment that we deserve. The response for us to be free, whether it's just to turn to him in hope or turn to him for life, is to turn to him. To turn to him in our struggles. To turn to him for life. To turn to the all-knowing, all-powerful, surrendered protector of our souls. To turn to him who knows and can do something about the crises in our life. To turn to him for help, for peace in times of crisis. To remember that his jaw has never hit the floor and it never will. To remember that his hands have never been tied or preoccupied. To remember that he is never surprised and his power has never been surpassed. He has never been shocked and he will never be subdued. To turn to him for life. Turning to him, putting our faith in the one who is willing to drink the cup of God's wrath for us so that we might live. To turn to him in faith. Amazing love, how can it be <laughs> that you, my king, would die for me? Those words just kept going through my head all week. <laughs> this is the God we have who loves us, who died for us, and who has not abandoned us in our life today. Let's pray to him in response. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you. We're humbled by this. We're, we're in awe of this because we're in awe of you. God, the, the truth of your gift is too much to bear. The gift is life. Lord, right now, you've given us life by faith, but not just life, but also that you would be our constant companion through our lives, that you would be our protector and our sustainer through lives, so that even if our lives come to an end, even if our sickness leads to death, even if this world seems to overpower us, we know that our hope continues for eternity. We know that we will have joy with you forever. We know that there is life on the other side of the river and the joy of that life will never dim, will never fade, and will never go away. God, this is the gift you've given us. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you out of joyful obedience to who you are. So Father, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.